and still are with so many players. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, they Come have on. Let's go. All right. Can you hit record, Carl? Yes. Recording now. Perfect. Hello. Hi, Meg. Hi. Hey. Are you in Vermont? Not yet. Still in Massachusetts. My car just got fixed because it was getting fixed while I was in London and then they needed a part and it was a holiday weekend. So I am still here. Oh, man. <laughs> You're almost there. <laughs> yeah. So I'll be driving tonight after the game. Uh, and I'm okay. finally back in Vermont. Where in Vermont do you live? Uh, Burlington. We're still trying to figure out like our actual final location. But my wife got a job up there two months ago and her parents live like right on Lake Champlain in Burlington. So we've been crashing. That's so awesome. I go there every year. I'm obsessed with Burlington. It's just a very great little city. Like I, yeah, I am obsessed with it. I love all the breweries. I'm yep, a biker. That's, a, like, that's what I was going to say. The breweries and just the, yeah. it has really good food too. Yeah. Oh yeah. The food is amazing. Like I will miss the variety of New York, but in terms of like quality of food, yeah, it's really hard to beat Burlington. Like it's really hard. I have to connect you. My friend works for a brewery up there and she also oh, really? is really into biking. So she sets up like these, like all like bike races that like end at the brewery or like, have Oh yeah. so it's like a really big biking community. Yeah. Well, there's just, it's so easy to get around on a bike. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely amazing. That's awesome. And how was the game in England? Yeah. I mean, it was good. Weird. Yeah. Um, like just a weird vibe for the whole week but then obviously like that one bar call that yeah really changed everything but I mean in terms of like atmosphere it just couldn't be beaten like that is the most hostile crowd I've ever heard at a U.S. Women's National Team game ever and it, honestly like it was really enjoyable like Megan Rapino getting booed at every corner kick is just something that you never experience and wow. um I think it's it's good and, and like they tried to start a USA chant and to say that that was like just immediately snuffed out like I was cracking uh there was oh, just no man. no tolerance whatsoever for wow. USA it was so funny that's amazing well it's amazing. refreshing in a weird way yeah yeah I mean like that's what it should be like it it should you know and like there were some cheers during the lineup announcements but as soon as that game starts like it should be hostile and yeah. like sarcastic and, yeah it was it was I think it's good. Yeah. Do you think it affected the players or did like, did it fuel them or did it kind of hurt? I think, you know, like with Megan Rapinoe, that's just like, I'm sure she loved it. I'm sure she loved every second of that for the younger players. Like that's really good experience to, to have before a world cup where, I mean, maybe you're not going to get something quite as strong as, you know, 76,000 at Wembley, but you know, in terms of, I mean, the, the closest I've ever heard, in terms of like fan opposition was in France that game in Paris against France for the quarterfinal. And even that was, I mean, it was strong, but it was very pro France and not just necessarily like anti USA. Whereas in England, it was both. Yeah, <laughs> It was both like, we want England to win, but also we really want you to lose. <laughs> That's so cool. It sounds like a fun experience, even though it wasn't the result we wanted, but yeah. I mean, but I, I, I don't know, like, you know, Vlako Andonovsky has said, no one's going to remember if we lose this game and then win the World Cup, which I don't agree with. But I also think that when they went to France in 2019 before the World Cup, 
and lost and got smacked in the face. Honestly, that was actually a really important game for the team to have stuff to work on. Yeah. And I think this is going to be, I think this is going to be more of the same. I'm really curious to see now what happens with those two Germany games Mm -hmm. in a month too, because I think those are going to be really instructive as well. So, I mean, it's, it's good. Like if they lose, then they got to learn from it or, you know, like then I think, the, the timeline gets really tight for some sort of massive change, like a coaching change, but you got to see, you got to see some sort of reaction right off the bat. And that's, a, that's the thing that I think this team is good at historically. Absolutely. So kind of switching topics. I mean, we had, we last, we spoke to you, I guess this was before um, your article came out. This was before the world cup, maybe when we last spoke. But obviously, it's been over a little bit of a year since your article came out, and so much has happened since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for any of our listeners who haven't read it yet, we'll we'll click we'll include the link in the description. But is there any like key takeaways from it that you think that everyone should be aware of? Who I don't know how they wouldn't know yet, but that haven't found out any information yet. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the article that we put out just over a year ago at the Athletic was two things really i mean it was obviously a very big story but there was the task of telling the stories of players like Sinead fairly and Shim and their experiences with head coach paul riley and then the second just as important part was all of the institutional failures that happened as they tried to report it so we found out okay mana shim tries to report paul riley in portland um in 2015 he is basically terminated like his contract is terminated but then they they send him off with a nice press release and he immediately gets hired by the western new york flash which then become north carolina courage so there's failure number one failure number two is when Sinead finally discloses her entire story to mana because she has her own experience that that goes back to even before nwsl with paul riley and they say okay we we now understand that this is a much larger problem than what we maybe originally thought. They go to the NWSL, to former commissioner Lisa Barrett, and say, we have information. We are concerned about the safety of players currently in this league. We really think that you should call us because there is new information here that you are not aware of. And instead, they basically both get greeted with email saying, well, we have this new anti-harassment policy put into place. And thank you. And we wish you all the best. That was investigated in 2015. We're done here. So there are all of these systemic failures that we found out about in terms of like players are going out of their way to keep this within the the realm of influence of the NWSL and to not take it public. So that way there's also not fallout for the league or a team. And instead it took going public in, I mean, not just my work, but, you know, Molly Hensley-Clancy at the Washington Post as well. Like that's the only thing that changed Mm. the entire system was when all of these players finally hit this breaking point of saying we are not seeing any response. And and now a year later, we've gotten the final report from Sally Yates. And I think the curtain got pulled back on just how terrible really the, like the sheer number of attempts from players, whether it was through player surveys, reporting, you know, trying to tell coaches like Jill Ellis, trying to tell Sunil Galat, you know, like the number of attempted reports for multiple coaches over the past essentially 10 years 
and then nothing changes until you get stories coming out about it in the public. And so that's, you know, there's like, this is a huge story and trying to, to sum it up and even like a page is kind of a ridiculous premise, but there are multiple parts to it of just like what the players have experienced. But the much bigger takeaway here is the systemic nature of it, both from the abuse happening, but also just the lack of reporting mechanisms when those reporting mechanisms were attempted, the lack of any institutional response whatsoever. Yeah, I feel like our first reactions when we read it was like, obviously like just shock and and being so sad, but also at the same time, it was like, I think all of us grew up with knowing that there was issues at that level, at the college level, at high school level, at club level. Like there's always been issues with having players and with coaches um, doing things incorrect way. And, And it was almost like a lot of people were just scared to speak up. And then for these players to speak up and it's still not to be addressed. It's like, it's scary. And that, that also makes people and all levels then think, okay, if I, if I speak up, is anything going to change? So it's yeah. hopefully now it's starting to become where if you are speaking up, your voice will be heard. So, I mean, 200 people we read in that report, like brought their stories. Like, is that surprising to you that there was that many? No, I mean, and I think just honestly, we're also waiting for this other investigation to finish too, right? So there's the Sally Yates investigation commissioned by U.S. Soccer, completely independent from U.S. Soccer. And then there's the NWSL slash NWSL PA investigation, which is different because the players have direct oversight of this process. So I think there is a real sense of this investigation is important also because the scope is all of the NWSL, every single team whether that team exists or not anymore, right? Like there is this sense of, okay, A, we've got a lot more to find out, but B, that, you know, to your point, okay, it's not just the NWSL though that we're talking about here. One of the main findings from Sally Yates was players are learning these behaviors are normal at the youth level. And whether that's verbal abuse, the lowering of boundaries, you know, that it's normal for a, a coach to text the player something inappropriate and everybody knows it's happening, but no one says it, no one reports it, right? Like all of those behaviors, we're seeing those at the youth level and then they come into college or pro and when it doesn't change, it's like, okay, this is this is what it is, I guess, right? One of the really, I think, things that scared a lot of people reading the AIDS report was that detail about they brought in someone externally, a sports psychologist for the Chicago Red Stars. 70% of the players reported abusive behaviors, but so many of them didn't even realize that they were abusive behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like we have such a big piece of this, I think coming, you know, the next step is like education of players to say, here's where the boundaries are. Here's what's acceptable. Here's what constitutes verbal abuse. Here's what constitutes retaliation here. You know, like, we have to go, you can't just like hand someone a, a dry 15 page policy to read. Like you have to actually work with these players from a much younger level to say, this is behavior that should be ringing alarm bells in your head. And you should be using all of these various mechanisms to flag this to someone who's going to look out for you. And that's, that's a big project. It's yeah. a really big project. There was like a, a thread on Twitter and it was, um, you know, college coaches saying like red flags from incoming freshmen 
And one of them was like, one of the biggest red flags for me if, is if I have a new player, a freshman that tells me that I need to, I need to scream in their face in order for them to be motivated on the field. And that's like, that just shows from the youth level. That is the, that's how you associate being spoken to as a player is being literally verbally abused and to what extent, who knows, but that just goes to show how much that gets ingrained as like something a coach should yeah. be doing you from the get-go which is nuts yeah I mean I think one of the big conversations we kept I, I kept hearing this example in London and it was coming from multiple people of like okay so you're let's say this 14 year old right and you're in school you would never you would like if a teacher screamed at you the way that your coach did after school that teacher would be in a review so quickly so what is the the magic thing that allows the coach when you walk down the hall at the end of the day to go to your practice to be able to scream at your face to motivate you? Like your history teacher isn't yelling in your face being like, give me the, you know, three branches of the U.S. government. And then if you can't like go stand in a corner, like that's not what's happening. And so why is it with sports that we allow these be behaviors to seem like justifiable? And that's like... <laughs> maybe we're going to start grappling with these questions in women's sports, but like, this, I think it is a much wider thing and like, it's going to have to unpack like so much social programming that we have in terms of like what football coaches do, like men's football coach. Like that's what I think so many people in this country were raised to, to experience sports as, and you're soft if you can't tolerate that verbal abuse. And I think it just is this really tough conversation that like we as a country are not going to handle well. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that you bring that up too, because we always say it too. I think we were all used to that, like, you know, yelling motivational sort of atmosphere that when we got to college, I think we were all so used to being yelled at that when the yelling started to borderline sexual harassment in terms of the way that we were spoken to by some of our coaches you're being generous with borderline. Yeah. <laughs> He's truly verbally yeah, on, on all levels. But like, to me, I was like, oh, it's like a fine line. It's like just a little bit of a switch from getting yelled at. Now there's like a weird connotation behind it. And yeah. then it, you know, as it kept progressing, you keep justifying it with what you've always experienced. So it's like, how do you think we're going to break that cycle over time? Because it is hard. Of course, there's going to be moments of yelling. And yeah, you know, that's yeah. It's, and I, I think it would be a completely unrealistic expectation to just say it. like every coach is going to magically be this lovely, supportive human being who can get the best out of his or her players by, by mentorship. You know, like I don't expect that. I don't think anybody ex expects that. I do think that a, the education piece is really important on the play. Obviously you have to have training for coaches, right? But there has to be the education part for the kids too in terms of these are the behaviors you have to watch out for. to your point these are how behaviors can escalate too right because that's also what we're seeing on the nwsl side is that a coach starts with like this sense of hey like i'm your coach i should know how much you weigh i should know what you're eating because your your body is your your tool right like so me as a coach like i have a right to know that about you and then it turns into a controlling thing in terms of, well, you need to lose this weight or else you can't play. Like there are kind of like, you can see players getting stepped up the ladder in terms of abuse. So I think that's a part of it, but 
just in terms of like that cultural conversation too, like, I mean, I think it has to go beyond soccer, but it's not like there's some magic, like oversight board that's going to figure out like, okay, this is what we want from coaches. I think, you know, one of the big recommendations in the Yates report is like putting some real teeth into the coaching uh, licensing part of U.S. soccer. And so I think that there is maybe a way for U.S. soccer to, to think about coaching and coaching education maybe in a new way and what we should expect from coaches. So there might be a nice way to at least control our little part of the world, but that cultural conversation I think is really, you know, I think it's been started in other sports too. Like, I mean, you think about gymnastics, right? Like we're not going through something unique here. There are other sports that have experienced this swimming as well. And I think the difference here now is that we're, we're kind of discussing at it from a team perspective and instead of an individual sport but I think that's what's really interesting about so much of the reporting around the NWSL is that you're finding players getting picked off right who are vulnerable to that and then that team environment not necessarily offering any additional protections because again they feel isolated they feel the sense of silence like you have 20 30 years of a culture here in U.S. soccer saying shut up and be grateful that you have a place to play. And we got to, we got to pull apart all of those layers too, in order to get someplace more productive. Yeah. Do you feel like that's why there are probably so many players that haven't come out saying anything yet? There's probably players that are terrified too, because like you said, some of the players who are coming out now, they do, they do feel isolated. And especially in the beginning when everything was just written off, like, we're sorry, but you know, everything will be fine moving forward. And they feel like they're not even being addressed. So do you think that there's like, what's keeping these players, like some players not coming out and telling their story? I mean, I think it, there, there are so many barriers to reporting, right. Just in terms of like the cultural pushback, you know, if, if you put your name on something and you're on social media, right. You immediately open yourself up to attacks. Like there's just, so little reward for actually trying to share the story. And I think, yes, we've seen in the NWSL that someone like Mana or Sinead or Kaya or Sam Johnson, Kristen, like these players have gotten immense support, but it is also still such a risk to say, okay, I'm going to put my name on this to open myself up to potential attacks, to have people judging, did I deserve it? Right. Like, I mean, we're still seeing comments that, try to put blame on the players for like, well, why would you go out drinking with your coach? Right. Like just make a better decision there. So there is a sense of like, and one comment can be enough to, to rattle someone. And I think that's totally like, I know my own, the way I approach feedback, I could get all the positive feedback in the world. I see one negative thing and that's all I can think about. So there are so many barriers to reporting. I think that what we have seen in the NWSL and in other spaces too, especially in women's soccer, is the sense of, I don't want this happening to someone else. I don't want this happening to a teammate. I don't want this happening to a, a kid who might get coached in the future by this coach, right? I think, or I don't want this coach moving into youth soccer and repeating the same behaviors that I witnessed, right? Like we don't know who would potentially be harmed by someone who's abusing right now. And that has been a real motivating factor. I mean, you go back and read those original emails from Sinead and Mana, and there is this real sense of like, we have to protect the players in the league right now. And that is why we are doing this. And then to have that be ignored, right? Like that's, 
I think the part that so many people are grappling with this week is that for all of that effort and for all of that selflessness of I'm not worried about justice for me or some sort of accountability for me. I'm worried about players right now to then be met with, we've investigated that to completion. Thank you. And we wish you all the best is really where the rage part comes in for a lot of people. And I think that that is really, really justified. Yeah, there's so much that's been happening the last few weeks. Do you think there's still a lot more to come? Like, do you think the dominoes are going to fall and we're going to keep hearing more? About- yeah, I mean, I we have the the other investigation yeah. coming. I think the scope is big there. Um, you know, obviously this week so far, we've already gotten news out of Orlando with Amanda Cromwell and Sam Green. And their, their contracts being terminated. Merritt Paulson just stepped down as CEO of both the Thorns and the Timbers, right? So that I think has been the one of the conversations I've been trying to have with players is like, yeah, like we know there's going to be policy changes, right? Like we know it, it's, they're guaranteed. The whole point, you know, everyone keeps saying the whole point of the NWSL investigation is to know what the exact failures are so that way you can address it and fix this league moving forward and know five, 10, 20 years down the line that what actions were taken in this year are what's going to build a better league. That's great. At the same time, we have seen players like Megan Rapino, Becky Sauerbrunn, and others say the the people in power who knew who were responsible have to go, right? And that's going to be the really tough, messy part because now there there are like legal ramifications, there are egos, there's like all of this stuff that has to get navigated. And one of the things that we've really seen, there's two parts to it. Sponsors right sponsor have already played like a really big role in portland in forcing merritt paulson's hand in particular alaska airways saying okay we're going to take our sponsorship money and send it to the players instead for this quarter right that's a huge awesome (laughs) that's a huge point of pressure and then the other part too and and what i keep trying to stress here is everybody has to make their own decision right whether that's you're going to boycott a game. You're going to show up to a game. You're going to be really rowdy at a game in support of the players and against, you know, an owner that you find to be someone that needs to right? like every single person has to navigate that for themselves. But I think, you know, the players have generally really said, like, we still want people there because that is kind of one of the few Sophia Smith said this um, while in Europe, like that's one of the few things left <laughs> we have as players is knowing that the fans are in our corner and that they're going to be there for us. But I think there's going to be something really powerful about these NWSL playoffs coming up in that there is a sense that a club is much bigger than any one person, right? It is about the players. It's about the community. And there is still a financial piece to this and that you have to pay to get in the door, but there's a platform to that moment. And I personally am I'm really curious to see in particular what happens when Portland hosts really the only game left of the fall because the men just bombed out of MLS postseason and they're only hosting that one single game at Providence Park. Like this is your only chance really to get in the building and be loud about something. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting to watch. How do you know that? That's amazing. I was just going to say, so for everyone listening, the way that you think that players listening can help support the players is by buying tickets and still showing up for them 
and, you know, doing what you can to support the players. Cause at the end of the day, that's, that's what is going to keep them going and fighting this fight. Right. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's multiple mechanisms. Every person has to make the decision of, do they want to give money to one of these teams or not? Right. And like, I don't want to make that decision for anyone because that's a personal comfort thing. And there are other avenues of, if you're not going to go to a game, you could donate that money to the support the players fund at the NWSLPA, right? Like, there is still a way to financially support players, whether you're going or not. But, you know, the league is still a thing that the players want to exist, right? It just has to be, like, radically fixed. And so we are in that messy point of the league has not been fixed yet. <laughs> the players are still in the league. We know that some future version is gonna, going to exist, but we know that pressure has to be exerted in order for those changes to happen. So it's not it's not this nice clean cut ethical decision that everybody gets to make. And that's, that's the thing that people are grappling with. And I, I fully understand, like it's painful for some people. And that's, I think that's totally fair. In terms of the league moving forward. And now, you know, one thing we were talking about amongst ourselves is there's going to be all these vacant spots, these holes in administration and the back end of stuff and the ownership, um, what would you like to see moving forward in terms of how those roles are filled or do you want it to be, you know, do you envision it being people that have never been personally in any of the messiness of the league? Do you want to be people that are on lower end and moved up into those positions? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people at teams who had no knowledge of, or like who did have knowledge and had no power to to solve anything. So, you know, I, I think, the big challenge is trying to find owners who are going to come in and, you know, have 30 million off the bat minimum probably. And if not more and who are going to do the right thing and spend, you know, like the only way through this moment really is with more money. <laughs> there is no, there's no world in, in which like money comes out of the end of money just has to keep going into the end of So we, you need owners with deep pockets who are going to do the right thing. And in order to have those, deep pockets like there's no like morally pure owner in professional sports period right so there's issue number one um but i think angel city is definitely kind of where a lot of people are looking because yes you have this kind of bigger ownership group right so you get a lot of viewpoints but the thing i've always really appreciated about angel city is you have a whole bunch of people who are coming from other spaces who don't know any better with the nwsl to have that kind of like institutional fear of oh we can't spend money because there's like we gotta we gotta survive right like they don't know any better and then you have a whole bunch of players who have lived through all of the worst of this saying we can't do this again and it's actually a pretty good combo i think like angel city hasn't gotten a perfect and i don't want to say that they have but i think angel city has shown that there is maybe this mechanism of ownership model where you get the best of both worlds of actual business experience matched with people who have the women's soccer history and knowledge and that produces something better and to be like we have to wait and see how this plays out you know over five ten years but that has been something that i have really honestly personally appreciated about angel city that there is maybe this other way forward. Yeah, definitely. And even just talking to the players on that team, they really are enjoying being there. There's like such an excitement and it's so cool to see what they've done in such a short amount of time. So like you said, five to 10 years, it'll be really exciting. Hopefully 
Yeah. It, they have like startup vibes, right? Like they don't have a training, but like they're in LA. Like I think that, you know, there's stuff that, again, they haven't gotten perfect and players might be annoyed about, right? But do they fundamentally give a shit about doing the right thing? I would vote yes. Yeah. We just need that feeling across the board. <laughs> uh, we don't want to keep you too much longer because we know the game's starting soon. But I would love to know, like, in all of this messiness and all of this, like, just craziness, is there something that you took away that was a real positive? I mean, just hearing you talk about how the players were saying that, just not even for themselves, but they want to make sure that the players who are playing now are safe. Is there anything else that really, like, touched you in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think the players are the leaders in this moment, right? And I think we have seen that from day one, um, that this is not work that they should ever be asked to do, right? Like, they are so used to, unfortunately, holding all of these extra burdens outside of, like, their actual jobs. Um, But they all so deeply care and want the league to be better and want the league to be safe and want the league to, to serve them essentially. Um, and to see the strength of like all of the statements, right. Chicago red stars players just releasing a statement. Like we have seen their solidarity at, at the end of I think the solidarity can still use some extension into other areas beyond the abuse. Like I, I think we could see more in terms of supporting players of color um supporting queer players but the players are finding their voice and have been for the past year and that is only going to make the NWSL better and that's I think really one of the most reassuring things I guess like it is a positive thing but I think it is really reassuring that there is a real sense of ownership over the future of women's soccer in the country from these players absolutely well, Meg, thank you so much for coming on. And we really appreciate you using your voice to just help amplify all these players' voices. I mean, I know it's not been easy at all, but we really appreciate it. And we know that everyone listening really does too. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. Awesome. Well, enjoy enjoy the game. Enjoy Vermont. Yeah. Enjoy the foliage. Yes, yeah. the foliage. I, I need know. to get up there. Yeah. It was like just peak, I think, in the mountains this past weekend. So like Burlington, I think, is going to be this weekend. So I'm just like, yes, uh, perfect timing. Oh, that's great. So and my my five year wedding anniversary is next weekend. So I'm sure we will go out into nature for that. So, yeah, we got married in Vermont, too. So it's where that's where you're meant to be. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can see you at a game soon. I know. Well, if you're at the championship, let me know. We will. So. Yeah, we'll let okay. You. All right. Sweet. Bye. All right. Thank bye. You.